Today on Maine Calling, a novel collaboration. It was a big idea, an almost absurdly big idea, that emerged from the depths of the pandemic. Why not reach out to dozens of authors to see if they'd like to collaborate on a novel? Here's the thing. Those who hatched this idea, authors Margaret Atwood and Douglas Preston, have pretty good contacts, and it actually happened. The result, a novel with the title 14 Days. Three years in the making, just released this week. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today on Maine Calling, no surprise, some of those involved have strong Maine connections, including Douglas Preston, who came up with the idea, and contributors Roxana Robinson and Tess Gerritsen. They join me to discuss the reason behind the book, the writing process, and what they learned by taking part in this big group project during such a dark time. Maine Calling is just ahead. Maine Calling on Demand is made possible in part by Maine Farmland Trust, working with farmers to grow the future of farming and food in Maine. Learn how you can get involved at mainefarmlandtrust.org learn. And by Maine Seacoast Mission, strengthening Maine's coastal and island communities through education, health, and support. Learn more at seacoastmission.org. I'm Jennifer Rooks, and this is Maine Calling. The novel 14 Days came out yesterday. It is not your typical piece of fiction, but rather a collaborative novel. Today, we're going to learn what that means, and we're going to hear from three of the well-known writers involved with this unique project, all with ties to Maine. Joining me this hour, Douglas Preston, the author of 36 books of both nonfiction and fiction, most of them New York Times bestsellers. He's also written for the New Yorker magazine and is current president of the Authors Guild. Tess Gerritsen is a best-selling author of 31 suspense novels. Her series inspired the TV series Rizzoli and Isles. And she and her son Josh have produced a documentary, which you may have seen, about pigs. Also with us, Roxana Robinson, author of seven novels, three collections of short stories, and a biography of Georgia O'Keeffe. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's, and elsewhere. We invite you to join the conversation. Uh, we know you haven't read the novel yet because it just came out, but what questions do you have for these authors? And as you'll hear in this conversation, we're gonna be talking a lot about what the pandemic meant to us. Um, and as we sort of still continue to process um, our relationships during that time, is this something you're thinking about? And did you write during this time? You can send a brief email to talk at mainepublic.org. You can post a comment on Facebook or Instagram or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Such a treat and honor to have all three of you with us today. Um, Douglas, so I'm gonna start with you because your name is on the front of this book. I know that this was um, in part your creation. So why don't you take us back to the beginning how did you conceive of a novel that, um, you know, would be a collaboration between 36 authors? Well, it was a crazy idea. Um, I'm not sure I would try it again, uh, but uh, it was, well, basically, you know, we, the, the book 14 Days is a project of the Authors Guild. 
which is America's oldest and largest association of authors. But the Guild represents all authors, uh, fiction, nonfiction, journalists, poets, children's authors, romance authors, literary fiction, and so forth. And for a long time, we've been talking about doing an anthology. But how do you do an anthology with such diversity? Who, who'd buy it? I mean, you know, who would buy a novel or an, an anthology that had stories by John Grisham and a romance author and Jonathan Franzen and a journalist here? So we never really got that project off the ground. And then the pandemic hit and we had this idea and it was kind of a strange idea that uh, we would write, a, create a novel, a collaborative novel and recruit all different kinds of authors to contribute first person stories. And then we would create a number of fictional characters who were in lockdown uh, on the roof of a shabby building in New York City uh, during the early days of the pandemic and have them tell these stories, these fictional characters tell these stories to each other. And so instead of being an anthology, it's really a novel. And uh, the, with a frame narrative, uh, not unlike the Canterbury Tales or, the, or Boccaccio's uh, um, you know, Decameron, where a number of people tell stories and then there's a frame narrative that sort of is a, a story within which all the stories are embedded. So that's how it came about. Uh, then we, uh, we asked Margaret Atwood to help recruit the authors. She's a very good friend of the Authors Guild and, and of course a towering literary figure. And so she helped us assemble an incredible group of 36 remarkable authors from all over the English speaking world. Uh, from you know, Ireland, Canada, and the United States, uh, who then wrote stories, which we then put in the mouths of fictional characters. So that's how the project was put together. Well, I'll turn to two of the recruits who are with us today. Tess Gerritsen, uh, did, did you get a call from Margaret Atwood? How did you get recruited to be a part of this? I got this email and it said it was from Margaret Atwood. And I thought, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but my first reaction was fear um, once I realized it was real because uh, Margaret Atwood, I'm gonna be in a collection with that. How can I possibly measure up? And so that was that really was my first reaction was, I don't know if I'm up to the challenge, but it was so, um, I guess it was so engaging, the whole idea of people on a rooftop. And then I knew Doug, Doug was uh, intimately involved. Actually, Doug, I think, was the, the maestro of the whole thing. And I know Doug very well. So uh, I took a plunge and I, I ended up writing an original story just uh, based on this premise. But uh, honestly, uh, even though I've written 31 books, this was, this was a scary thing for me to do. Isn't that interesting? Roxana, what about for you? Was it the same thing, an email from Margaret Atwood? I think the first message I got was from Doug. <clears throat> and I've been involved with the Authors Guild for years. And so I knew Doug. Um, and his invitation was so winning and so irresistible. He said, um, I know that you that all writers have a story in the in the drawer that they haven't gotten out. And would you be willing? And he explained the, the premise. And um, of course, 
I would do anything for the Authors Guild. And I did have a story. It wasn't in the drawer, but it was in the back of my mind. It was something that I had wanted to write about. I would never gotten around to it. I wasn't quite sure what the premise would be, how I would frame it. Um, and Doug also sent a story that he'd written or um, just something he, a memory that he had that sort of established the tone. And I thought, this is the, this is the moment for me to write that story. And it was kind of wonderful sending it off into the darkness, knowing that it was going to be shepherded by other authors and um, woven into something else. So it, it's, it's a wonderful, for me, it was a wonderful combination of the silent, solitary work that you do as a writer um, connected to the great collaborative presence of other writers and co uh, collegial culture. Mm. And, you know, Doug, it really is kind of a clever conceit to have people telling stories on a rooftop because then you didn't need to worry about different authors' styles because obviously the different storytellers on the rooftop would have different styles. I'm interested in, though, reading this book and, and um, reading the stories it becomes sort of, even though they're all very different and the authors didn't know what each other was writing when they were writing these books, it, it together becomes a little bit of a profound reflection on several things, um, you know, our shared humanity, um, how, how many people, uh, death, um, um, confronting death during something like a pandemic. And I'm wondering, Doug, if you realized all of these things were going to happen when you launched this project. Well, to tell you the truth, I had no idea uh, how it was going to work out. And actually, about two-thirds of the way through it, I thought, my God, this is going to be the, the biggest literary disaster of the new century. <laughs> um, and, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way. The You know, they say the finest steel passes through the hottest fire, and this was a very hot fire. Um, it was, you know, we got 36 incredible stories of the most amazing diversity. Uh, and they were all different stories. I mean, these are not pandemic stories, by the way. These were mostly stories about life, about love, about death, about murder. Some of them were confessions. Some of them were quite violent and terrifying. Others were, were you know, really sweet. Uh, some were actually ghost stories. Uh, some were funny crazy stories, there were war stories, and the diversity of it scared me to death. I thought, how are we going to put all this together into, a, into a, a single literary work? But it worked because, well, first of all, I had to organize the stories in some kind of order. So I you know, laid them all out, I mixed and matched them, it was like putting together a puzzle. And finally, I came up with an order of stories that made sort of sense so that each night on the rooftop, and of course, they're on the rooftop for 14 days. So they're 14 days worth of stories. Each night, you know, two or three people would tell a story, but each story riffs off the last one. But then, of course, we, we not just me, had to create fictional characters to tell the stories. And of course, those characters had to have the background and the voice of the author who wrote the story. And because of the great diversity of authors, um, and some of the stories had foreign languages in them, a Spanish, um, you know, some Chinese, uh, you know, uh, there was a lot of diversity of the contributors. So the 
characters on the rooftop had to be very diverse. But fortunately, uh, New York City is a very diverse place. This shabby building in the Lower East Side was filled with typical New York tenants who uh, were kind of random. Uh, they had no interest in each other. Uh, they didn't even like each other. Uh, and they get up on the rooftop and they're pretty much ignoring each other, which is what New Yorkers do, until finally, you know, after a couple of days of ignoring each other, they realize that this pandemic is, is different. And they start talking to each other and they start irritating each other and they start arguing with each other. But eventually they start telling stories. And after 14 days, they formed a community. And that's what is so, that was the, the perp, that was what I hoped to achieve with the frame narrative was that eventually this very disparate group of New Yorkers uh, who really didn't even like each other in the beginning form a community and realize uh, their humanity and their whole, their humanity comes out through their stories and also through their interactions with each other. Tess Gerritsen, your um, character, your storyteller, is a doctor from Maine, uh, something you're familiar with <laughs> as a doctor from Maine. Um, I, I'm just wondering um, how you decided on that and, and how you came up with your idea for the story you're going to tell. The story I told is actually a true story from my history of working as a doctor. Oh, um, I love that. And, you know, here, here I'm, we're writing about the pandemic. We're writing really about this horrible time when you're hearing ambulance uh, sirens screaming by and bodies are being piled up and, you know, in, in temporary morgues in New York City. And it seemed to me that this was really about death. It was, it was about how we accept death. So I reached back and um, told a story I've never told before. Um, I guess it was just sitting in the back of my mind. Not, I just didn't know what to do with it. But it, um, it dates back to my years as a medical resident uh, in Honolulu. And we had um, a, a number of nuns who were working as nurses in a Franciscan hospital. And there was one particular nun who seemed to be able to tell when a patient was going to die. Uh, and I would, you would see her standing outside a patient's door or standing at the foot of an ICU bed and she would make the sign of the cross and then she would walk away. Um, and the first time I saw that, I didn't know what it meant until one of the other residents said, oh, that's a bad sign. That means that patient's going to die. And I began watching her and sure enough, she seemed to know, even though the patient might look perfectly healthy when they came in, um, days later, sometimes weeks later, that patient would pass away. Uh, it's just an, an eerie thing to think about. And I wrote the story about my conversation with her and uh, and how there are some things that science cannot explain. Uh, you know, I, I believe in science because I am a medical doctor, but there are things that are mysterious in the practice of medicine as somebody is going to, or as somebody is going to die that we just don't have answers to. So that was my story. And it's about a doctor from Maine who recounts what happened when she was in medical training. I love that. Yeah, it, just I mean, having read it this morning, I just I love that it's a real and true story. That's um, just fantastic. Roxana Robinson, your your story also um, is kind of about death. Um, well, uh, it, but it's more more involved than that. Um, and what I love, Douglas, is that you had set up this character 
of Whitney as being a very, um, you know, typical, what many people think of New Yorker in that she's very, um, you know, cultural and, and she's, uh, works in a, ga a gallery, right? And, but Roxana, did you know all of this or did, did Douglas, say, I mean, did, was it chicken or egg? Who, who came up with the character and who came up with the story? I came up with the story and you'll have to ask Doug about the character. Okay, but tell us how you came up with the story and then Doug will will ask you that about Whitney, the character who tells Roxana's story. Um, so like Tess, this was something this was a true story and I used really? to work Really? Yeah. Wow. And um I used to work for an auction house and so at the auction house we were we dealt with really the 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 greatest works of art that were being that were passing through people's hands and it, it it was a very elevated sort of place and at that time it was the only big auction house in the country so we really had a um, a monopoly on these great works of art and we became very full of ourselves because of that because we sort of somehow felt that we were at the top of the, the food chain instead of the work being at the top of the food chain so we um we were used to dealing with great works of art that were incredibly valuable and, and important. And so this, this, this event, which happened, which um, involved a, a group of us going out to appraise work um, at, on the property of a family that was unthinkably wealthy and had been wealthy for nearly a century. Um, at first, it felt as though we were just swimming in the water that we were meant to swim in, that this is what we we understood. But as the, um, the day passed, it became more and more clear that there was a kind of agony within this household, something that my character hadn't been aware of and had no way of knowing beforehand. But it was set side by side with this... this, this um, atmosphere of unthinkable wealth and privilege and to finally realize that this family was no more privileged than anyone else in terms of love and anguish and pain um, was for me the, the sort of the crux of the story that and that was that was the way to um, the conclusion the feeling of of understanding that that came with this story. Wow, I'm also just blown away that this is your real life experience. Doug, did you know this about both Tess and Roxana's stories? Well, I, I actually, I knew that Roxana's story was true. And when I read Tess's story, I, I sensed right away that it was a true story. I, I just have to say these two stories are, are so powerful. And in Tess's story, uh, there's, I, don't, I won't go into too much detail because I don't want to spoil it, but one of the important parts of the story is the smell of wet leaves. And that part of that story just so is so vivid. And so on the rooftop, uh, I, when I was writing the frame narrative, there's a motif of wet leaves, you know, leaves blowing onto the rooftop and, you know, sometimes when the characters go up there in the evening, it's rain during the day, and there's a smell of wet leaves. Uh, so the, so that, that became an important motif of the story. And, and Roxana's story is equally uh, 
uh, it bends steel, as they say, about a great short story. But it's very, very disturbing. Uh, I mean, Tessa's story is very powerful, but it, there's something warm about it. But Roxana's story is not warm. It's very disturbing. It leaves you with a very unsettled feeling. And so after her story is told, I, as the writer of the frame narrative, had to come up with how are the characters on the rooftop going to react to hearing the story about this very wealthy family that ends on a, on a very strange and disturbing note. And that, that was a huge challenge. I had to rewrite that three or four times before I could get the characters reacting in a way that wasn't either facile or, or uh, it's, you had to hit the right note. I don't know if, if, if Roxana, if she likes the way the characters deal with her story or not. Um, actually, I'd be curious to know, Roxana, what do you think of, of the conversation <laughs> after your story? Do you think that these characters were understood what was going on in the story or were affected by it in the, in the way that you intended? No, I, I loved what you did with it, Doug. I, I think it's 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 masterful. And I my hat is off to you for taking on this challenge, as you said, of of trying to weave a narrative that encompasses all these diverse voices. Um so no, I, I thought it was great the way you did it. We do have to take a break. We are talking with Roxana Robinson, Tess Gerritsen, and Douglas Preston about the new collaborative novel, 14 Days, and about writing in general and about the pandemic. Our phone number, 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email to talk at mainpublic.org or comment on Facebook or Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is Maine Calling. I'm Jennifer Rooks. Today we are discussing a just released novel, a collaborative novel called 14 Days. It was edited by Douglas, Pres Douglas Preston and Margaret Atwood. And Douglas is with us as well as two of the writers who contributed to the book, best-selling authors Roxana Robinson and Tess Gerritsen. Roxana's latest novel is Leaving and Tess's new book is the Spy Coast. You can share your comments and questions by email, talk at mainpublic.org, comment on Facebook or Instagram, or give us a call at 1-800-399-3566. Chris has sent an email curious about other collaborative novels. Are there others they can share or would recommend? Um, I don't know of any others. Uh, Douglas, you mentioned the Canterbury Tales. Um, uh, uh, Tess, I see you shaking your head. This is not something that um, is is a regular part of uh, most people's reading lists. Well, there is a there isn't a, a famous old serial novel. Uh, it's called Naked Came the Stranger. I was just thinking oh, that. That was, was Newsweek, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, gosh, it was back in the 60s, or yeah. I'm not sure when, but it was a bunch of famous authors, just like this book, uh, but they wrote a serial novel, so they passed each chapter on to the other one. It became an absolutely hilarious and absurd literary exercise, completely different from this one, um, but I believe it was a huge bestseller. People thought it was really hilarious, so... But that's the only one I can think of, other than other than maybe a thousand and one nights, um, which was sort of a collaborative 
novel in a sense that those stories were collected over time and the stories within stories is a bit like like 14 days. I want to ask, um, and I'll start with you, Roxana. You talked about how the life of a writer is usually very solitary. Um, with this project, did you find yourself feeling less solitary? Did you share your story with some other participants and and talk about them? Or did you just write your story and submit it to Douglas? I just wrote my story and submitted it. Um, I was confident that Doug was going to do a great job, which he has. Um, but no, I mean, I don't know how Doug, you do it. You write, you write books with a partner. And um, my hat is off to you for that. I, I couldn't possibly write with a collaborator. I, I wouldn't know how to do it. So I, I wrote the story that I wanted to write and then sent it off knowing that it would be carefully taken care of. And Tess, what about for you? Was was there um, a, a collaborative, a collegial feeling or n not really? Um, I have done one collaborative novel with a male partner where we traded off chapters and he would write the male point of view and I'd write the female point of view. So that was that you, ha you had to interact there. This particular um, novel, no, we did not interact. We were as if we were all in our own little bubbles telling our stories. Um, I think what... I was most attracted to was being pulled back into the pandemic era when we were all in our little bubbles. Maybe we were corresponding by email, but we were just not with each other. And uh, that was uh, that was the the feeling I was getting as I was writing this particular story. So I didn't get a chance to get any feedback from other people or find out what they were writing. But like Roxana, I knew that Doug was going to take good care of it. And by the way, Doug's Doug's role in this is, I don't know how he did it. I mean, I remember hearing about what he was going to be doing, and I just thought, oh, my God, good luck, Doug. Um, <laughs> and uh, the fact that he pulled us all together, um, I call it herding 36 cats, uh, but it was far worse than that. It was not just herding them. It was making them do tricks, uh, <laughs> and he got us all to do it. So, yeah, that was uh, that was my reaction to the whole thing. It was this was This was going to be hard to pull off, and, and he did it. Well, it's interesting that you said, um, Tess, that this brought you back into the pandemic. And that was so interesting because, you know, we think back to the 1918 pandemic and there is very little um, literature about that. I, I think there are a couple novels, but but considering what a moment it was in human history, there there is very little um uh, writing, uh, movies, music. And and I'm wondering, um, if it was uncomfortable to go back, if it was something that, as you were thinking about this, there was something human thinking, I, I'm not sure I want to do this. Well, that's an interesting question because I don't think there's been much pandemic um, fiction written since, well, of course, we're still in the middle of it in a way. Uh, but I think that those of us who lived through it, it was a, it was a painful time and maybe we're just not ready to talk about it the way, uh, fiction about Vietnam that took a long time to to come about as well, and also fiction about 9/11. Uh, there's not a lot about about it, so maybe it's because the memory is still too fresh and painful, and we're just trying to forget it happened. And what about you, Roxana? Did you feel uncomfortable with the idea of being thrown back three years or so? No, not at all. I mean, I was writing the story not from the point of view of the pandemic, but 
the, my own relationship to that story. But it's it's true. First of all, it takes a long time for writers to deal with something through fiction. I wrote a, a novel about a Marine lieutenant coming home from Iraq. And the so I was tracking what was written about that war. And it took 10 years for a novel to come out about it. So I think fiction moves particularly slowly in a sort of glacial fashion. And um, you have to have a, a, a deep connection to the event before you can write about it. And as Tess said, there's very little written about 9-11 because <clears throat> if you were intimately involved in it, you were dead. And the people outside it had a, a distant relationship to it. So it's hard to really connect with that in the way that fiction writers need to do. Um, so, But for this, I, I think the pandemic, as Tess says, is something we're still trying to process. Everyone who's here now lived through it. Um, it's still kind of a question mark in in our minds, my mind anyway. Um, and I like the fact that this that Doug brought us into that and reminded us of that weird suppression that we all labored under, that we all lived under. Um, suppression and that it was invisible. You you could go outside, but you might be risking death by doing that. You could go to the supermarket, but you might die if you did. It was it was like a science fiction movie. It was just so strange and painful and, and disheartening because you felt that not enough was being done for the the people of this country, the people of the plant on the planet. Um, so it's hard to wrestle with. So I was I was very grateful to Doug for allowing writers to take part in something that they weren't dealing with directly yet, but which needed to be addressed. Mm, yeah, and Doug, one thing that struck me reading, and, and again, you wrote the framing narrative around these stories. You wrote about little details that I sort of had already forgotten. I mean, how could I? It's a little embarrassing to say, but until I read your novel, I did not, I had not thought of the fact that New Yorkers and people around the uh, country really celebrated um, the essential workers, especially medical personnel, every night at the same time during shift change. And uh, I'd forgotten about that. And in this novel brings me, but as soon as you read that, and as soon as it's part of the, the framework for this novel, it brings you right back to that moment. Well, that, that's interesting. Yeah, the, uh, you know, I think that storytelling is deeply embedded in our human nature, in our species. And we tell stories to each other to make sense of a, of a senseless and often senseless and cruel and confusing world. And so when things like 9-11 or the pandemic occur, or we have a war like Vietnam that tears the country apart, it takes a long time for us to process that information. But once we've processed it, we heal by telling each other stories. And I, I feel like what, what happens on this rooftop is kind of a healing process. Uh, these people who are in lockdown, who are uh, you know cut off from their families, uh, the person the super of the building who's the one actually recording all this. Her father is in a nursing home and she can't talk to him. She doesn't even know if he's alive or dead, you know? So, so it's really a, a process of making sense of a senseless world. Um, and 
the reason they're on the rooftop in the first place actually is, well, first of all, they want to get up on the rooftop just to get some fresh air, but they're there largely to celebrate, to cheer on the first responders. At seven o'clock in New York, that's when they did it. And of course, once you're up on the rooftop, you hear, you don't, the only sounds coming out of the, of the city are the sounds of ambulance sirens. And the ambulances are coming up and down, um, you know, all night long. And uh, there's no other sounds. There are no sounds of planes overhead. There's not the usual bustle, the honking of horns, uh, the usual bustle you hear in the city. So it's a very eerie feeling being on the rooftop, uh, isolated like that. But at least at seven o'clock, they get to cheer the first responders. And then at eight o'clock, the old bells of, of St. Patrick's Old Cathedral ring, and that sort of closes the evening every night, and they all go back to their apartments. We're talking about a new collaborative novel, 14 Days, set during the early days of the pandemic, um, in which uh, a number of people come together in a building and tell stories, and those stories written by 36 different authors. Um, we'd love to have you join the conversation. Our phone number 1-800-399-3566. You can send a brief email if you're quick to talk at mainpublic.org or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Jennifer Rooks. You're listening to Maine Calling. We have been learning about a new book that just came out called 14 Days. It is a collaborative novel and we have some of the authors involved with this book on the program roxana robinson and tess gerritsen both contributed chapters to the book and doug preston along with margaret atwood edited the novel you can join our conversation 1-800-399-3566 you can send a brief email if you're quick to talk at mainpublic.org or post to our Facebook page or to Instagram. Doug, you mentioned that this is a project of the Authors Guild. Um, you're president of Authors Guild right now. What will the proceeds be used for? What what is the what's the point of all this? Going to the Authors Guild Foundation to support our uh, our various programs, but most importantly, um, to fight book banning. Uh, the Authors Guild has a number of attorneys on staff, and we are actually suing uh, the banners, um, and we're winning all the we're winning our lawsuits. Uh, in other cases, we are supporting lawsuits by others against the book banning crowd, um, writing amicus briefs and things like that. And we are also fighting back against uh, big tech uh, and their AI systems, which have digested hundreds of thousands of copyrighted books by our authors, by American authors, without permission and without compensation. So the Authors Guild, along with 17 authors, um, I'm one of the plaintiffs, is actually suing OpenAI and, and Microsoft for stealing our books. Uh, so we, we are involved in a lot of very important things. Uh, the Authors Guild is, is uh, um, you know, the oldest and largest professional association of authors. And we've really been fighting for, for books, for authors' rights, and for copyright protection for over a hundred years. So all the proceeds from this book are going to fund those efforts. 
I've mentioned offhand a couple times already that all three of you have ties to Maine. Uh, Tess Gerritsen, uh, you live in the Midcoast, and um, I'm wondering if, if I'm going to ask each of you if you could talk about, if you have reflected upon what spending at least part of, if not all of the year in Maine, has meant for you as a writer. Well, I've been here 33 years. I live here year-round, uh, through winter and through mud season. And what it's meant for me is um, we live in the most beautiful place in, on Earth. I mean, I, that's why I'm here. I feel like I could live anywhere in the world, but I chose Maine and I don't want to leave Maine. Uh, and the other thing we have here is we have a really tight community of writers. I saw an article in the Washington Post that said we're uh, probably one of the top five states who have the number of writers per capita. We have so many artists and writers here. There's something about the seasons that help me write. There's something about the community. And there's something about being in a, in a place so small that your readers will come up to you and say hi. Last night when we did our event at uh, Mechanics Hall for uh, 14 days, one of those readers said to me, it's amazing. I used to come from New York City. I used to be in New York City and you would never dare go up to a writer. But she said, in Maine, you see them at LLB and you see them at the dump and it just feels like, yeah, we're all we're all one community. Roxana, what about you? What does your time in Maine mean to you as a writer? Um, I have been coming to Maine not as a year-round resident, but as mostly as a summer resident since the late 70s. And like everyone who comes to Maine, I love it. Um, We've gone further um, east than Tess. We're on Mount Desert Island, and I've been there all year round. And actually, the winter is one of my favorite seasons in Maine. And I would write all day and then go out for cross-country ski in the evening as the sun was setting. This view of the mountains, the feel of the snow under my skis, the silence, and the incredible beauty that surrounds you in Maine. So it's been a place of extraordinary sustenance for me. And I don't need to say how beautiful it is in the summer. That's what, when everyone knows it, it's beautiful. The pink granite shores, spend time on the water if you possibly can, climb the mountains. Um, it's, it's just, it's a paradise. And what about for you, Doug Preston? Well, I am uh, 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 live in Round Pond, Maine, which is in Bristol. And uh, my family's been there for almost 100 years. Um, I, uh, you know, I spent the, the pandemic in Maine, a no, no better place. And uh, no, uh, several members of my family, my father-in-law, who was in his 90s, joined us. And uh, we formed a little pod with our immediate neighbors. But it was, you know, it was a difficult time, but it was also a magical time. Uh, you know, Maine is Maine is a wonderful state for a creative person. Uh, it, it just, it's so inspiring. And I have a little shack in the woods that's about eight by 10, where I do my writing and I walk, I have to hike into the woods. I built it far enough away from the house so that my kids, when we were, when they were growing up, wouldn't uh, bother me. <laughs> they, it's too far a hike for them. So, you know, I just find Maine to be, just a, a perfect place for a creative person. We'll go to Sandra, who's calling from Carmel. Hi, Sandra. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to say that um, thank you so much for, for the fiction um, novel um, for the first 14 days of the pandemic. And it's good to be able to have that 
the fiction part of the pandemic for all of us to continue to process because as we um, go through this, the continuing um, story, I guess, of the pandemic, it's a way to help us all. Um, and, it, you know, it's just, it's also surreal, um, but we lived it. So um, to continue to put information out there about, you know, everyone's viewpoint or whatever is always very helpful for all of us as humans. And um, you're right about Maine. Um, you don't appreciate it until you leave it. And when you come back, it's like a breath of fresh air and you go, oh, my God, I finally made it. Right. And um, so well, Sandra. I, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for calling in. Sandra used the word surreal. I think one of you, Roxana, used the word weird. Um, and and I think that having, um, in a way, this novel, and, and Roxana, I'll ask you what you think, um, takes it out of that space of being weird and surreal and puts it right back in into real life, even though it's a work of fiction. Well, I think I think it yeah, it reminds us of that strange passage in our in our lives, which was really not like something any one of us had ever experienced. This feeling of being alive and healthy with risk around you, invisible risk surrounding you, and a feeling of being connected but not connected. Um, so it's it's a it's a great boon that Doug has 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 allowed all of us to re-enter that world and experience it. And, and Tess, I'm thinking about you as a medical doctor who has, um, you know, probably studied many pandemics past, but the perspective that living through one and writing through one, it, it, how do you think that helped you um, maybe better appreciate um, history and medical history helped you maybe better appreciate the work that um, other medical professionals do. Yeah, I've been studying pandemics for a while because I have always thought that what was going to kill us was bird flu, H5, H5N1. I thought that was what was going to wipe out humanity. And then to have this completely new bat virus show up to, to do the job instead. But you know what I felt through the pandemic as a medical person who no longer practices? I felt guilty. And I think that those of us who were in Maine we were lucky enough to be in a state that had one of the lower death rates in the country. Um, and I felt guilty because I could see what was happening in New York City. And you think about the people who volunteered. There are people who volunteered to go down to the city to work. Um, very brave souls. And so my husband and I are at home going, gee, what are we doing? So, yeah, we felt guilty that we weren't part of the solution, but we were here in our little bubble untouched, uh, at least our family was. An email here from Nicole for Doug with 32 different stories. It's actually 36 <laughs> with um, 36 different personalities telling a story. And then with some of these folks on the rooftop responding to each story, that means you, the weaver of all, has to adopt several personalities, i.e. writing styles yourself in response or else it would just sound like the same narrative voice responding. How did you do that? Well, I, I created a character uh, who is the super of the building, a woman named Yessie. And she has arrived in the building very recently, right before the, the pandemic hit. 
And she goes up to the rooftop, uh, breaking, you know, she opens the, you know, she goes up to the rooftop, puts a lock on the door so no one else can come up on the roof so she can just enjoy it by herself. But one of the tenants breaks the lock and comes up and then pretty soon all the tenants are up there. And she's very annoyed by this. And as they start telling stories to each other, she takes out her, her phone and starts secretly recording the stories. And then every evening she goes back downstairs and transcribes all these stories in a big book that she's got, a big manuscript book, and adding her own very sarcastic and acerbic commentary. <laughs> and so the book itself, 14 Days, is her, is, 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 what, is this manuscript that she created with her commentary. So this character, Yessie, is sort of the glue that holds the whole book together. And she starts out with a very dim view of her fellow tenants. Um, she doesn't like them. Uh, they don't really like her. Uh, they don't, she's very secretive. She refuses to tell a story, uh, even though they urge her to. Uh, finally, she does tell a story and it's a horribly violent and terrifying confession, which, which freaks them all out. So that, that's sort of, but anyway, she's the character that holds it all together. And uh, that's how I, we managed to pull this off. A quick cor correction, and thank you, Roxana. Doug, you're not the current president of the Authors Guild, but a past president, as as are you, Roxana. And so, for for both of you, um, this this work is is a big part of your life, and and not just you know um, doing your own work and trying to um, reach as many readers as possible, but also standing up for the community of authors, most of whom you don't know. Why do you think? Uh, Doug, you're so committed to the Authors Guild, and, and Roxanne, I'll ask you the same thing. Well, you know, American literary culture is the foundation of our democracy, of our culture, of, it's, it's really a profound part of America and our country. And uh, freedom of expression is absolutely foundational to our society. And that's what the Authors Guild really does is, is it, it fights for freedom of expression for authors of all different kinds to write the books that they wanna write and for readers to be able to read the books they wanna read. And so we fight back against anything that interferes with this full free flow of expression in our society, which is just so important to who we are as a people. Roxana? Uh, I agree with everything Doug said, and I'll just add the fact that, um, you know, copyright was written into the constitution of this country. It is, as Doug says, it's foundational to this democracy. And it was written in because the founders understood that if writers could not own their own ideas and their own writing, they would stop producing them. And the founders wanted the free flow of new ideas to be part of this country. So copyright means that if you write something, you own it. And if someone else uses it, you deserve compensation. That your work, your intellectual work, is as valuable as any material work. And that is central to this democracy. And it's something that all of us work to protect. 
And Tess, this is pretty personal for you, this talk about copyright. It Well, yes, but beyond that, I, I'm also mostly concerned about the book banning uh, that I'm seeing in Florida. That I'm see it's it's people who are minorities, uh, LGBT, um, African Americans who are finding books about them uh, or books written by them often are the ones that are challenged. So I'm a minority too, and I remember growing up as uh, you know an Asian American kid, and the first time I read *The Woman Warrior* by Maxine Hong Kingston. That was the first time I felt seen in fiction. It was the first time I felt like I was part of a fictional community that I had not um, realized was there. And I can imagine being, um, you know, a kid who's questioning their sexuality and finding one of these books and feeling seen for the first time. That is why they need to be on school shelves. Mm. We have just about a minute left. So I'm going to turn back to you, Doug Preston. When people pick up 14 Days, when people read all of these stories by 36 authors, what are you hoping they come away with? How are you hoping this changes people? Well, I think just it's a very, very good read. It's a page turner. It is, it is you know, a wonderful book to snuggle up with on a cold winter's evening. Um, and also one thing we haven't mentioned is it's a literary, it's a very fun literary puzzle because these 36 authors are not byline. When you read the book, you don't know who wrote which stories. All you hear are the fictional characters telling the stories. So you get to guess, I wonder who wrote this story. Was it John Grisham? Was it Celeste Ng? Was it Roxana Robinson or, or Tess Gerritsen? And you can't find that out unless you go to the back of the book and try to look it up. And we made it very difficult to figure <laughs> out who wrote which story. So it's, it's a fun book. It's a great read. That's what I hope people take away from it, first of all. And then there are deeper things as well. Well, we're not going to have to, you're not going to have to tell us what those deeper things are because we're out of time. Thank you so much, all three of you. That was Douglas Preston, an author and editor who created and helped edit the new collaborative novel, 14 Days. He's also a former president of the Authors Guild. Author Tess Gerritsen contributed one of the chapters to 14 Days. Her latest book is The Spy Coast. And author Roxana Robinson also contributed to 14 Days. Her latest book is, I have the note here, Leaving a Novel. That's not right, Roxana, is it? Is, oh, it, no. The, the title of the novel is Leaving. Leaving, yes, Leaving. <laughs> um, yeah. Today's sound engineer, Jane Donahue, main calling produced by Jonathan Smith and Cindy Hahn. Um, I'm Jennifer Rooks. You've been listening to Maine Calling on Maine Public Radio.